Welcome to the Lucky Let Cord Podcast, a Tennis Now production sponsored by Tennis Express. Happy tennis off-season, everybody. I'm your host, Chris Otto. Happy to be with you. On Friday, December 13th, we're talking about the decade of tennis that was, and this episode of the Lucky Let Cord Podcast will be all about the special moments in the last 10 years, some of them a little bit offbeat. We're going to focus a lot on the tearjerkers, those moments that made us cry over the last decade. And if you're a passionate tennis fan, you know that tears are a part of the equation when it comes to tennis. There were so many magical moments. I mean, this was an easy one to prepare for. The only difficulties that I had, along with Tennis Now editor Richard Pagliaro, who will be joining us in a few moments, the only difficulties we had were narrowing this list down and actually stopping at some point and moving on to another topic. We also talk about the player of the decade, male and female. We think those were pretty cut and try decisions. Maybe you guys agree. You can flip fast forward a little bit and find out who we chose and some other great and pivotal moments of the decade that was in tennis. It's a long interview, so grab some Kleenex, sit tight, listen up, and reminisce in the glory of a brilliant decade of tennis. Thanks to Richard Pagliaro for joining us. By the way, you guys can find us on social. Just Google Lucky Letcord Podcast, iTunes, Spotify, all your podcast purveyors. And also, we're now a part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. But let's get to business. Let's talk tennis cheerjerkers right now with Richard Pagliaro. Very pleased to bring aboard Richard Pagliaro. It's been a little while since we talked. I think it's uh, the end of the Asian swing. So we're here to not just break down a year of tennis. We're here to break down the whole decade. What's up, Richard? Hey, good to speak with you, Chris. Thanks for having me on the show. Always a pleasure. So, gosh, I mean, where do we start? I mean, you and I have talked about this a little bit. We've done our homework. We want to start with tearjerkers. We want to start with emotions, those matches that made your spine tingle, those those really cool emotional moments, the comeback stories, the surprises, the, the ones that really pulled on your heart. I've got a long list of them, and I know you probably do too. Why don't you get us started? Give me something from the last 10 years that just like was unbelievably and undeniably emotional and cool. Uh, you know, when you when we were first emailing back and forth, the first one, I got to be honest, that popped into my mind was uh, Del Potro Djokovic at the Rio Olympics. Just yes. the way it ended and the way the respect and the, you know, the mutual love that they had and that just the way that they, the compassion that he showed and also the way you could just see how painful it was for Novak, how, how badly he wanted that. That, that was the first one that that hit me that's the one that, it was a real turd shoot i really found myself shedding tears over it as, as corny as it sounds yeah, I, no i shed tears over those olympics were just a cry fest and we'll get to something else from that that same, those same olympic games the rio 2016 games but yeah you know that the crazy part of that match and the aftermath was Djokovic in tears and I guess now as we know the history of what Djokovic was going through after he held all four majors at once and then the injury started to set in I think this was a lot of him just suffering physically and mentally at the same time there and it was so surprising to see him in tears wasn't it? Also, yeah, absolutely, everything you said, and also the hype for that match when the draw came out, the whole world is like, oh, my God, Del Potro, Djokovic, and the fan presence at that match was, you know, the, the fans were so into it. So I think all of that just churned, and they're both, you know, they're both really fun players to watch in the clutch, too, because they can both make shots, you know, big big shot makers. 
Yeah, and it was Del Potro, of course, the comeback story of those Olympic Games, making it all the way to the final before he finally fell to Andy Murray, who I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot in this segment. <laughs> yeah, yeah I was going to say Andy Murray can have his own category, best lead performer in tearjerkers, because I got a lot of them with Andy Murray. Yeah, before we go on, though, 2016 Olympic Games, Monica Puig blew my mind that year, and I just absolutely, yeah. I still Glad think you said that. Yeah. It's it's probably the most improbable story of the tennis decade because what was Monica Puig before those Olympic Games? What is she after? I mean, she's a solid player, we all know that, but this run was just miraculous. She plows through Muguruza, Kvitova, and Kerber to become the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal at any Olympic Games, the first female Puerto Rican to win any kind of medal, just and just all it just kept building and building, and you're thinking, can she really do this? Can she beat these top-flight elite players one after the other? And she did it. It was just ridiculous. And then, of course, she names the dog after the after the city or the games, right? Yeah, and then her reaction with the flag when she took that lap, and you just saw in her face how how. Just the relief, but also the elation, and how. And remember, Puerto Rico was going through some brutally tough times after everything that had happened there, and how much it lifted the the whole place. And I, I live in New York, where there's a pretty large Puerto Rican population in the Bronx. And I remember a video, a news were shown on the Grand Concourse, people driving up and down with the flags. It really was a just everybody wherever you were on the planet if you watched that performance. The other thing about that match, people forget. Kerber, won, that had to go three sets. I think Kerber left the court. So you're sitting there thinking, well, here's the third set. It's Angelique Kerber, Monica Puig. You know, I think that most of the world was thinking this is Kerber's gold medal. And for Monica Puig to just sit on the court and have to think about it's one set for the gold medal. And then she just annihilated her in a third. I think she was up five love in like 15, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I think she won a third set 6-1. I mean, for her to have to sit there and think about the most pressure-packed set you're about to play in your whole life and then go out and play the greatest set you've ever played in your life. It's just mind-blowing to me what she did. It's incredible. And that 2016, of course, was the year of Kerber. She was the the WTA Player of the Year, if I'm not mistaken, winning her first two majors. I mean, she was on her Right, and you're thinking, you know, you're thinking, wow, Kerber's taking a break. She's going to, you know, change her clothes, come out and just become Angelique Kerber that it beat Serena, you know, and it just... You know, Monica just totally flipped the script. Yeah, and I think it's cool that we started, that you started us off on the Olympics because players playing for their country, for their flag, we've seen it time and time again. We just saw it at Davis Cup this year where that is, that event was basically considered by so many to be falling flat on its face, but it was probably one of the most moving segments of the year. So it's cool that we started with the Olympics, but let's move on. What else you got, tearjerker-wise? Well, you know what? Another one that really... Uh that really touched me was the, um, well, there are two, they're kind of injury-related. The, the um, Nicholas Almagro, the knee injury at Roland Garros yes. with Del Potro, where Del Potro consoled, where you just saw the pain in Almagro. He's throwing the water. I mean, he just feels like my career could be done right here. And the way Del Potro's cradling, like, really, the compassion he showed. And the other one was the horrific, the Bethany Maddox-Sands injury at Wimbledon, where you watch it and you're like, oh, my God, this is the worst that was scary. thing I've ever seen in an just an instant going from, you know, just just you 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 just lose it almost. You just it, it was just so gruesome to see it, especially to someone like her who's so gregarious, such a positive person. And it was also going for the the doubles that with Lucy. They had one, you know, they were going for the uh, uh, 
for the double slam there too. So it was just that that one really, really was like someone really just punching you in the gut. Oh yeah, that one just basically shut down the grounds at Wimbledon on that day. I remember it well. That was scary. And and circling back to Del Potro, I just remember the the image of Almagro who had been through through so much at that point, laying down on the baseline on his back and just sobbing, just just right, just sobbing. Right. And Del Potro quick right. to run over there and just like you know caressing him. I mean, this guy is not shy about being like the warmest cuddliest human being on the planet and he completely gets it two guys that have been through so much injury wise i mean seeing them together and seeing the compassion i mean that's that's what's so great about this sport the way that the players care for one another even though they're fierce competitors on court i mean beautiful moments right there and thank god bethany is back i mean almagro is now retired but he got to finish on his terms and of course bethany back and going strong which is good that was a pretty tough comeback for her yeah, yeah, absolutely. That it turned out that, that she turned it a real, real, you know, the most severe negative you can ever that you can ever encounter. She turned into a positive, and I would say the same thing about the Petra Kvitova. That was a tearjerker for me when she came back at Roland Garros after you know nearly being murdered, basically, you know, being stabbed in the hand, you know, fighting for her life, basically, and coming back and just to see her back and able to be and able to compete and see the response she got. And how she was able to take something so horrific and 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 handle it with class and dignity and all it was really inspiring and really moving for me to see that. Yeah, she is such a courageous woman, and I think we learned a lot about her. And it, it wasn't just the fact that she made it back, but it was the her character and the things that she said about just appreciating the moment for what it was and just being happy to be back in the sport she loved. It was kind of like a. I mean, so many tennis fans rallied behind that moment. Just it was just about the love of being back on the court and being simple and being, you know, just being a player again and realize what a gift it was for her. Absolutely, yeah. I think you you said it so well. And also, let's not forget the guy that did this to her. He was still on the loose at that time. Like nobody knew where the guy was at that time. So that's even when you put it in that perspective, it's even more scary that you're out there in a public place. This guy, you know, you know, they they didn't have him at that time. So yeah. yeah. It was it was really something. Yeah, I mean, have to. It, that has really never ceased to amaze me how much courage Kvitova has. I just moved by her, you know, as she continues and continues to play and continues to really be a dominant force at the top of the game. It's it's just so cool that she's back and that she was able to overcome that. But she did it with such dignity and uh, just something special. Pure class. Pure, Pure class. class. Um, I can go back to the very beginning of the decade, one of my favorite moments. I don't know if this one will be on your list, but maybe it was. Francesca Schiavone winning Roland Garros. I cried wow, my eyes out for that victory. That's, uh, yeah, that's a, I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, what what for you? I mean, that is on my list. I'm okay, okay, good, good. Well, for me, it was a lot like Puig's victory where it kind of came out of nowhere. She was a veteran. She had been around for so long and just given her heart and soul to the game and to Italian tennis. And, you know, she didn't have the most difficult draw at that event, but it was just like one of those things where you're like, I think she might be able to win this tournament. And then the way that she played, the style of tennis she played, took us to, I mean, really made the purists happy because she just played a lot of drop shots, a lot of creative topspin. She played with such gusto and she let her she let her heart just bleed out there in the court. She was kissing the court after her victories. It just everything about it and to see an Italian player, the first Italian player to win Roland Garros, it was just just a moving moment for me. I just I'll never forget it. One of my favorite Grand Slam moments of all time, certainly of the decade. 
I agree with you. And also, you know, we forget she was the first one-handed backhand woman to win a slam, I think, since Justine Hennon, and that was like years earlier. And also that she had, she played maybe the most flawless net game I've seen in a major final from a woman in, in year. I mean, she was coming in, even in that tie break, she took the moment on the right. Like, she attacked the moment. She wasn't shy about it at all. And also the, what I remember about that was after the match where she admitted she was so nervous and tight that she was sobbing before the match where she actually told her coach, I can't do I can't go out there. I can't do it. And the coach actually had to talk her into going out. That, you're actually that much of a mess before the match and then can go out and play like this operatic tennis was just... Yes, operatic. Her net play, amazing. Just some such courageous forays to the net, just going in there and closing off volleys and just seizing the moment. I mean, just amazing. And what's remarkable is she proved she wasn't a fluke, made it back to the final the next year. At exactly, exactly. And, you know, that leads right into one of the moments I was going to say as a attorney where Lee Na became the first Asian uh, the next year where Lee Na came through and beat her. And that was a great final. That went to the, the tie break, too, and Lee Na steamrolled. Through that, um, through that tie break. But, yeah, that validated Schiavone, and it also validated Lee Na. It was a, sort of like a perfect uh, a bridge. And also another Lee Na moment I had was the, the 2013 Australian Open final where she lost the final. I believe it was like the day before her wedding anniversary. And I remember the presser after, not the main presser, but with the Chinese media, she broke down when she, she said she wanted to do it for her husband and their anniversary and to honor him. And yeah. it just was so. I remember being almost moved to tears because you know Lena always wore the visor when she played, and this was a shot where she didn't have the visor. She's just staring right into the camera, her hairs pulled back, and you just see her. You know, just see the tears dissolve, and you see it all come out of her, and and you just realize how much. You know, the relationship with her husband and the journey that they took together, she had a really tough life, a tough upbringing, and, and it was great to see her come back the next year and then win it. And then she gives you a tearjerker for a whole another reason for the really funny and beautiful speech she gave in uh, 2014 when she won it. What an incredible personality. I think that's part. That's the part yeah. of it. The, the tennis fans were just so enamored with her. Just what a character. But, yeah, you know, 330 million people watched that Roland Garros final. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just, imagine the pressure going out. And like I said, the tiebreaker, Schiavone had won the previous year the tiebreak to beat Sam Stoser. So Schiavone had been through that and Lee Na had not. And for her to to really step up in that moment was, was uh, mesmerizing. Yeah, I mean, let's stay in Paris a bit because Roland Garros just in general makes me cry. It's just an amazing yeah. event. So, <laughs> many, so many things have happened there. I'll give you two amazing moments. I'll start with Simona Halep finally breaking through in 2018, winning her first major. I mean, I, I think I'm still getting teary thinking about that, how badly she wanted it, how close she had come, the heartbreak against Ostapenko the previous year, the other heartbreaks in the other major finals. Again, another person that is so endeared. So, so uh, I don't know, tennis fans just love Simona for just her her the way she's just so real and just is so, I don't know, what is it about Simona that makes her so special? I just think you hit it when you said she's so real. I think she's someone you can look at and you can see. She shows you her emotions. She shows you the ups and downs. And if you play tennis at any level, you know what? I mean, she, she's sort of like an average-sized person. She's not six feet tall. She can't serve 140 miles an hour. But she just fights so hard and she gives so much passion to it. I think that makes her really relatable, especially if you're a fan of the sport because you're already bringing the passion as a fan. Thank you for saving me there. I, I, I lost my words, but you said it so well. Yeah, relatable is what it is. Just such a good human. Yeah, yeah. 
Roland Garros, 2015, the Stanimal wins the title. For me, it wasn't so much about Stan, although that was amazing, as were his shorts. It was about the way that the crowd gave it gave up the love for Novak Djokovic, who again had endured so much heartbreak at that event. I mean, think about it. He had his 41 match winning streak snapped by Federer early in the decade. He lost a tough final, two tough finals, in fact, to Rafael Nadal, one of which he appeared to be gaining momentum before the rains came. I mean, just a lot of heartbreak. The 9-7 in the fifth against against uh, Nadal at one point. I mean, so many things have conspired against him at Roland Garros. And then here he was again, finally beating Rafa, getting to the final and just getting blown away by Stan. And then the crowd gives him what? Was it a 90-second standing ovation? So moving. One of the best moments of the decade for sure. Absolutely agree with you, 100%. And also that, that Stan went over and, and tried to console no, Novak, although at that moment, what, you know, what can you say? It reminded me of the, the Australian Open match they played when Novak beat Stan. That's one of the few times I've ever seen Stan really shed tears where he, you know, he had given so much, he was depleted, and, and Novak consoled him at that moment in, in Australia, and Stan reciprocated at, at Roland Garros, and like you said, there was so much on the line, such a historic match, and Stan played, one, I mean, he played one of the, that was one of the, the matches of his career, without a doubt, yeah, that's a great one, that's a great, you know, for me, another one that maybe, it was more maybe me uh, reading into it, but uh, Rafa, Adesimo, when, when they brought Uncle Tony out, and the two of them together, when he embraced Uncle, for some reason, that really, really moved me, oh, because yeah. Uncle Tony always has this pragmatic, kind of tough guy, like, tell it like it is guy, and he almost doesn't show you the amount, but then to see how much it meant to the two of them, and it's a lifelong journey that they had, that really, that really moved me, that one. That was the 10th, 10th Nadal, Roland Garros crown, 2017. Yeah, and also Uncle Tony, you know, it's kind of the end of the line for him as the co- and all they had been through, and he basically raised him as a player, and 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 to see them share that together, I, I was really touched Absolutely. by that one. Absolutely, every, every time Rafa wins Roland Garros, I get the same feeling, these t- spine tingling feeling of the way he's so humble, the way he appreciates it so much, just like it was the first time. He's, it's just amazing. I mean, I, I, it never gets old. He can if he if he keeps winning it, it'll feel the same way next year if he does the thirteenth. You know. Yeah, and another one I would throw out there, another Rafa related one was the the marathon five hour fifty three minute in the oh, Novak man. loss in Australia. The two of them where they had to bring the chairs out. That was a really that was a really moving one too. If you were still stand, if you were still awake, if you could still, <laughs> if you weren't like I don't know out down for the count after six hours of hair hair raising tennis, <laughs> yes, that was incredible. I mean, jeez. Oh, speaking of Andy Murray, what I mean, let's let's get it started on the Muzza. He's got he's had a few great ones. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I can uh, get it started. Go, I mean, I have like a hundred Andy Murrays. Oh. I mean, I have so many. You know, there's so many with it. For some reason, and Andy Murray's like this cranky, cantankerous, ornery guy, or he can be <laughs> he is. a competitor. But for some reason, the guy makes me lose some of these Andy Murray moments, or you just makes you go to pieces watching this guy yeah i mean i'll start with the olympic gold i think that was the moment where he really crystallized as to to, as a a player that can be an elite champion and it was to me the first time that he really let his emotions out in a positive way so beautifully resonating with the crowd at wimbledon after he absolutely smoked roger federer i mean played the perfect match and i think that was the match that that really springboarded his the rest of his career now he's a three-time major champ but it was to me, it was really the way he smiled, the way that he was proud, the way that that moment resonated with all of us. It was a good one for me. 
And also the the crowd was perfect because it was such a departure from the quiet pleas, you know, the re, the really stayed sometimes center court crowd. You that it was a loud partisan crowd, and one of the few times you'll ever see a crowd not with Federer, you know. Yeah. So that was another, yeah, that was definitely up there for me. I was going to say when he broke the uh, when he broke the seventy seven year when he won Wimbledon. I mean that really was was because of the the enormity, the pressure of it, and also the exchange. You know, with his box, his family there, that was really heavy duty to see that one. Absolutely. Um, you can go back to 2012, the year before that at Wimbledon, where he lost to Federer, and he had the, one of the greatest post-match runner-up speeches I've ever seen. He starts it off saying, I'm going to try this, and it's not going to be easy. And he's already crying. <laughs> yeah, Just, yeah. I mean, the crowd's going nuts, and then he he went on to thank them in a way that I, don't, I think a lot of players try to do, but don't do it quite as well as Andy did on that day where he just really showed gratitude and let them know how much their support meant to him. It was a really cool moment for me. And of course, you know, he joked with Federer that day. It was just, everything was kind of perfect. And uh, it was really heartbreaking to, to see him get so close. But again, of course he was back the next year and finally winning it. So. That reminded me of that speech a little bit of the year when he lost the Australian Open final to Roger, and he started tearing up, and he said, I'll cry like Roger, maybe someday I could play like Roger. He made a remark. Well, he turned it into like a, like kind of a joke, but you could see the pain in it. But it was such a great moment because he's one of the few guys, he's so honest in those moments where you, you just respect to be that candid and be that, uh, to put yourself in that kind of a vulnerable position, not just in front of, you know, the whole world is watching, you know, he's a really honest guy. I really respect that about him. Yeah. You know, he doesn't try to go for the Rolex moment. He's not giving you a cliche or when, you know, he's just showing you this is what it feels like, you yeah. know, and, and that's a beautiful thing to see. Thank, thank goodness for Andy Murray. How about 2018 City Open? Now that we've yeah, all watched... That was, yeah, the Marius Kovac. Yeah, yeah that I mean, now that we've watched resurfacing, knowing just how close he was to calling it quits and what was going on in his head, how he was tormented by his inability to get healthy... We were wondering if he was overjoyed at that time after watching that match. Was it three in the morning? I remember sitting there going like, what is going on with this guy? And he, he was sobbing really because he felt like he was done. He felt like that was pretty much all he was going to be able to give for his career. So it turns out to be, wow, just a crazy moment, a heartbreaking one. I mean, but, but now in retrospect that he's back and he's got the second surgery and he's playing again. I mean, this whole last 18 months have been an Andy Murray tearjerker, really. Yeah, and that match, you know, and it wasn't like he was just, like, shedding a few times. I mean, he was heaving. I mean, the guy was really, I mean, he was totally gutted. He was totally depleted. There was nothing there. I mean, you're just looking at it like, oh, my God. what? You know, it's like, yeah, that that one was a really, really vivid one. And when you see the video of it now, even now, it's it's really moving to see. And that one and also the uh, Roberto Batista gut match at um, the Australian Open this year where he's walking off and you wonder if that's the last time we're ever going to see Andy Murray. Uh, at a grand slam or even at a tournament that that was heavy duty that one yeah and speaking of of rba roberto batista agu this year's davis cup him coming back after just i mean a heartbreaking moment in his life he lost his has now lost both his parents and he comes back and helps his team win the davis cup and the players like nadal and, and these greats from spain make it all about roberto which was a really really special moment one that i'll remember forever that was a beautiful moment, especially when you look at how he competes. He's usually a very stoic guy. He doesn't give you a lot. I mean, he'll give you a fist bump once in a while, but he's not a very demonstrative player. And to see him just, uh, 
you know, unburden his whole emotions like that. And also that it, what he said afterward about his dad, because his dad was an athlete and how important it was for him to be there with the team because he knew his dad, that's really what he, what he really wanted him to do and really pursue it. So it was a real... A real, a real tribute to his father and their relationship yeah. too. I mean, we can go we can go through the years of Davis Cup, and we thought it was going to be different this year with the new format. It clearly is not with the magic that we've seen. I mean, I think it was Serbia that kicked off the Davis Cup decade, winning that title was a mind blower. There was Andy Murray finally breaking through and basically taking Great Britain Great, Great Britain on his back. There was Federer and Stanimal doing it for Switzerland. Yeah. That was just an you know that was just too much love and too much joy during that Swiss run. So, I mean, Davis Cup has certainly provided with provided us with a lot of good moments. Yeah, absolutely. And also Del Potro, Argentina, oh, Del yeah. Bonus, you know, they won the first one and they did it, on, you know, and they had to do it away from home too. And that he had to come back against Marin Cilic. Great comeback. Um, that, that one was a real, that was such a, just their reaction, you know, because that, yeah, you think of all the great Argentinian players. They had Vilas, they had Clerk, they had Nalbandi and Corey, all these guys. Nobody could ever do it till that group did it. Uh, that was a great one. Yeah, and take your pick at Fed Cup as well. I mean, we had the Czech team winning six titles in the decade. I mean, talking about Petra Kvitova, uh, Barbora Streetsova played a big role as a great doubles player, and, and of course, head coach, uh, I think it's Peter Pella is the pronunciation of his name. I mean, the greatest Fed Cup captain of all time. A lot of emotional moments on the Fed Cup. For sure, for sure. Um, there's one that I wanted to bring up that we didn't talk about, and it's uh, 2018, back to Roland Garros, uh, Nicola Mou and Pierre Hugues-Herbert take the title. It wasn't about the match so much, although it was their first Roland Garros triumph. It was about uh, Mahou's son, Nathaniel, running on the court and having that moment <laughs> with his dad. I mean, just unbelievable stuff. I mean, just made-for-TV tearjerker right there. Oh, absolutely. And especially how many years in a row Mahou had played the French, you know. And also, it was a nice thing for him because whenever you see him, you're always thinking about Isner Mahou, or at least sometime, at some point it crosses your mind, Isner Mahou. And he was so gracious after that loss to go through all the photo ops and all the interviews and everything to see him win and, and prevail. It's always a nice feeling. It's crazy. Um, I mean, geez, the that's that we're just at the tip of the iceberg really with tearjerkers. I don't really have anything else to add for the moment. I think maybe we can move on unless you've got something else to get off your chest. Well, the chest. only other one that really stuck out for me was Federer the eighth Wimbledon when his kids were all there because he'd always talked about wanting to play long enough so that his children could watch him in person and appreciate, you know, this is what my father does for a living. And when he won that one, uh, it was right before the right right before the interview when he was walking over, he, you could see him get teary-eyed looking over and all the kids, the, you know, his parents, his wife, everyone there. That that was, I yeah, felt moved by that. Absolutely. Federer, I mean, every time Federer wins a title and he's got more than 100 now and he's had plenty in this decade. I and mean, yeah, there's a lot of moments where you've you've been emotional with Federer. I mean, he's he's the original, the original, um, tear tear flowing guy right i don't know how to say yeah. this but i mean he's the original he's the guy that taught us that it's okay to cry when you're talking about tennis, right, right right we right. owe a lot to him he's the best okay. at it. He, he has, oh yeah. man i mean you know a novak having his kids there in 2018 was also a pretty emotional one uh that was a big title for him as well because it was his first since kind of like going through all those injury troubles and he had his little boy steph on there yeah i mean it's just it never ends. I mean, this is tennis and tears. They go hand in hand, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, you said it. It's pretty awesome. So I don't know. What else could we talk about? Player of the decade. You know what? Let's talk about that. Who's your? Who are your player of the decade? ATP and WTA. Uh, wow. I would say Novak for the men, uh, just because, you know, the the holding all four simultaneously that stretch where he was basically unbeatable. Also, the head that he was able to expand the head to head, you know, leads over his two biggest rivals and also if you look at the most recent you know the match with Rafa when he played him in Australia that was one of his more emphatic performances ever that I've ever seen in a slam and as you said he went through the whole thing with the elbow and he's had the shoulder and then he's had to readjust the serve he's had to modify the racket the weight and balance of the racket all that he's been through uh you know also some off the court stuff I I would give it to him although I wouldn't argue if 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 you went with Rafa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 40 majors in, in the decade, 15 won by Novak Djokovic. He played in 23 of the 40 Grand Slam finals, uh, 80 and 38 against the top five in the decade, and, and also 10 and five against the number one ranked players, 275 weeks at number one in this decade. I, I think he's clearly, for me, Rafa was a close second. He won 12 majors, and we know what, what, he, what he's done at Roland Garros, uh, but to me it's Novak Djokovic's decade. I think also when you look at what he does on all surfaces, that really sets him apart uniquely in the history of tennis. And, and also that a lot of times when he's playing these guys, like the like this year, the Wimbledon final is a perfect example. Like 95, 90% of the crowd is with Roger. I mean, that's really, really hard under those circumstances. And you're in an intimate court. It's a historic environment. you got two championship points against you, and everybody's against you, and you're still able to stand and deliver uh, that's amazing. Yeah, I, yeah. It seems it almost seems like more and more these crowds revel in the fact that they can kind of antagonize Djokovic. It's like it's uh, it's become a thing. It's only, it seems to be growing. It's uh, it's uh, yeah. It's tough. It must be really hard for him at times to deal with that. And he he's done quite well though. And he is an emotional guy, but he's he's done a good job channeling that emotion positively and sometimes negatively. Where you've seen him break rackets, throw stuff around, make gestures like even that Wimbledon. He didn't do the hard thing after the uh, Wimbledon final, but I feel like he in 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 areas like in, in Asia, he's really popular. I feel like there are places where he's yeah. really appreciated too. But I, I mean, it's just hard. You're going against iconic players that are two of the most beloved players in, in the history of any sport. So it's really, really hard. And that's something I don't think he gets enough credit for how, um, uh, just, just just how honorably he handles that. Yeah, yeah. You know? I think that might also explain why he was so heartbroken in Rio in 2016 at the Olympic Games, because the Serbian fans have his back in a very special way. I mean, the connection is ridiculous there, and I think he wants to bring him home, bring home those international triumphs whenever he can. He did that with the Davis Cup, and maybe that explains a little bit of his heartbreak at the Olympics. Oh. Yeah, absolutely, and I think looking ahead a little bit, you know, the fact that he won Tokyo this year, that he got a huge, great reception winning it, and that the next Olympics are in Tokyo, I think he's in a really good spot going in to, to do what he's always wanted to do, and that's, you know, complete the career golden Grand Slam and win the Olympic gold in singles, which is really, really rare. Yeah, sure is. Um, uh, women's side, I think I think I know what your answer will be for player of the decade. Well, why don't you go first? Then? I think there can only be one player. Um, she did everything else but pass Margaret Court's record. She won 12 majors. She was dominant pretty much from start to finish. 
Uh, she reached 19 of the 40 major finals. She now has 23. That's, uh, it was Serena's decade. I think nobody else won three, more than three. It was Kerber with three majors. And then a, a lot of players, I think eight, won two, a pair of majors. There were a lot of great players in the decade, but nobody came close to what Serena did. Absolutely agree. And also, it's just a testament to her uh, unbelievable staying power. If you look at that, for that Wimbledon final 2010, I believe it was Vonnerevo who retired and then came back. All these people that she beat previously, like Kim Kleiss retired and came back, Angus retired and came back. And she never went anywhere. She just kept playing. I mean, sure, she had injuries, she had breaks, but she never, you know, took her eye off the ball. And, and, and I think that's. That's something that maybe she should get more credit for. That she comes to, you know, she comes to play, and also the longevity against the different generations. This is someone who's beaten Sellers. This is someone who's beaten Graf and is now up against Osaka and Bianca Andretti. I mean, just the expanse of opponents that she's faced is um, is just mind blowing. I mean, she's played everybody, and she's beaten most of them too. And when it counts, yeah, I mean, you're right, I and mean, you hit up, you hit upon the key, one of the key trends of the decade, which is longevity. I think if you ask. Either of us at the start of 2010, will Serena Williams and Roger Federer still be kicking ass at the age of 38 when the decade closes? We would have said no, but there was Federer this year having two championship points at Wimbledon, still a top three player, still close to the peak of his powers. And there was Serena playing a lot, uh, you know, in the business end of majors and didn't didn't break through and get what she wanted out of it. But back after pregnancy and, and childbirth, I mean, it's remarkable that they're still in the game and playing so well. Yeah, and I think the big challenge for her is going to be, you know, can she play and can she find that balance to play enough and stay healthy and stay sharp? Because it is all about the record right now. And I think if she can, if she can do that, then she's going to do it at least equal it. But you know, the other thing is these younger players like Bianca and Naomi. You know, they're they're really really gifted players yeah. who get up for playing her. So the challenge just gets it gets steeper for her, and I think it's going to be fascinating to see how it unfolds for her. But, you know, the desire is there. I mean, you see it. You see If you watch the 2018 U.S. Open final, the 20, you see it. She's showing it. She's pouring it all out there. I mean, whether she gets it or not, we'll see. But it's not going to be because she, because she hasn't poured everything into it. Yeah, we know she wants to get one for Olympia, and we know she wants to have us back in 10 years from now talking about the tearjerkers of the third decade of the 2000s, and she wants to be number one there, right? You know, winning yeah. her 25th major. Yeah, yeah, and she definitely wants to play the Olympics again, too, so we'll see what happens there. <laughs> She's she, the gift that keeps on giving, right? It's just amazing. So uh, what else do you want to fast forward to? How about predictions? This is an interesting one. Who will be the player of the decade in, of the next decade? That's a tough one for me. I, I couldn't quite – I came down with a couple answers, but it was not easy. I would say on the men, there's so many good young players. I would – if I had to put pick one guy, I would say Sitsipas today. <laughs> I had so a feeling you were going to say that. Based on just his all-court – based on what we saw in London, you know, the, the fact that he has the all-court game that – to me, his game is more varied than the other than Zverev and, and and some of the other younger players. But also the desire and the fact that I think that he's from Greece. I think that really empowers him. That he really feels like it's bigger than him. It's for it's for a nation of people. In the same way that Guga, when Guga came out in Brazil, was all behind him. I think it's it. Or even with Novak and Serbia, although Serbia had a lot of other really strong players, obviously. But I think that empowers him, and I just think his the depth of his game is is it impresses me more than anyone else. And also the serve, 
I mean, you saw in London that streak he had, you know, denying not only the break point, but holding serve. When you, that's the name of the game, holding serve, and he can do that. He's yeah. a big guy. His serve's going to get bigger. So uh, I like him a lot, but, you know, I also like Felix. I like I like Shapovalov, what he showed us in Davis Cup. I like him a lot, right. too. So we'll see. And how can you not like Medvedev, you know? How yeah. can you, uh, Zverev, Zverev is the guy that everybody sort of, you know, crowned as the next guy, and I think he'll win majors for sure, but I think some of those other guys, I think their games are more complete, yeah. I think, potentially. Dominic Team made incredible strides Dominic this year. Team, yeah. He's a little bit older, and I also want to add, I did pick Sitsipas after much deliberation, but there's one name that I think has a chance to do it, and no, we haven't talked about him at all. It could be Novak Djokovic. I mean, that he could he could do enough work in the first five years of the decade that he makes a lasting enough impression that he ends up being the player of the next decade as well. It's possible. It, especially if, let's say, and, and I, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but let's say he obliterated Rogers, right? Let's say he did that. I mean, that's yeah. a huge—I mean, that is about as big as it gets. So, yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that, but he, you know, he looks super fit, you know? Mm-hmm. I know you wanted to talk a little bit about controversial moments— so just for fun, we had a lot of fun with the tearjerkers. Why don't we finish off on that? Why don't we talk about um, some of the most memorable controversies of the 2010s? Get us started. You know, for me, one of the first ones I thought about was the BBC BuzzFeed, the gambling uh, expose that, I mean, everybody knew that is one of those sports you get, but when you learn the depth and also that some of the officials were fixing, I mean, I, I can't say that it shocked me, but the depth of it and... and, and uh, and the scope of it, that was that was huge to me because mm-hmm. it, you know, especially the lower level matches, it was really hard to police that. And when you saw uh, when you saw the access that pe- they were getting to players and how easy it was, and when you realized that the officials, the actual chair umpires, were fixing or helping, it, it, that was really that was that was big. Yeah, and you realize how 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 important really it is for the future of the game to get that cleaned up. I mean, a lot of. It, it really does mess with the integrity of the sport. And also the technology that they were basically using technology, self stuff like that to scan the system that he was, they were actually using umpires to delay scoring. So they could get bet on points already played. So they were actually using the technology to scan the system. Was, yeah. Okay. That's a shame. Yeah. I'd say the other one that Sheriff Holder really, when it happened, I, I gotta be honest, I did not see that one coming. And I know now in retrospect, everyone's like, wow, you know, you heard this, you heard that. And then Russia with, you know, with the Olympic ban recently, but I have to be, I have to be honest. I did not see that one coming. That, that one definitely shocked me. No, I mean, she, you're talking about someone who was the, the most highest paid female athlete in terms of endorsements, according to Forbes, like 10 years in a row, one of the biggest stars in the game, to go down like that and really never really come back. I mean, yeah, sure, she's well, she's made major quarterfinals, but she has not been the same since that. I mean, that's a career before and after sort of schism. Yes, I think it, what's the most shocking to me about Sharapova, her doping ban, her 15-month doping ban, is that she let it happen, is that she didn't get the information she needed to do and didn't stop using meldonium and it was just a strange thing that happened where they made the sub- substance illegal. And I don't know. She was just woefully unprepared to really deal with that whole situation. We found out a lot more than we would have found out if she had just had the right information and just stopped taking the stuff. And 
it's so unfortunate to see basically what has happened to her career since then. I mean, she was she was on track for a while there, had a couple of Roland Garros titles in this decade, was looking like the best clay quarter in the game, the best one of the best players in three setters, and now we're all speculating about these records and why she was so good in third sets, particularly on clay, and it's a shame, really. It is, because you're always going to look at it through that filter or that prism, and, and also that she has not really been able to sustain health since then. And you would think, geez, if you walked away for 15 months from any physical activity and you gave yourself your body time to rest, recover, rejuvenate, you're able to work out with the best trainers, that you would come back, you know, I'm not saying come back stronger, but you would come back strong, fit, and prepared. And she has not, she's just had nagging, nagging, and they're legitimate injury. I mean, she's just reached a point, so I'm not linking the two i'm not saying maybe but maybe she was more banged up all along than, than we knew yeah. but it, it just causes you to reassess everything you thought like you said the three set record is a big i mean she was almost for a while almost unbeatable in three set matches and of course you gotta wonder especially if you're simona Halep, when you lost that final and it was one of the hottest days of the year in paris and simona Halep's one of the fittest players and then you lose a third grueling i would definitely be wondering that. exactly that's where we're going with this it makes you wonder and that's why it's so unfortunate but yeah, yeah it is unf it's unfortunate for her too but you know and also the whole thing with the, the sniping after with the ita it just made the sport look look petty and small yeah i mean she's the biggest really the biggest name i mean there were some other Tough ones that went through his troubles. Chilich had his troubles with with the uh, doping troubles, and also Victor Troisky had some trouble with that. And his was an odd situation where he refused to, due to his fear of needles, to do a test after a match in Monte Carlo. That was a strange one. But Sharapova, by far the biggest fish that tennis has ever seen, have trouble like this. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I was a big Hingis fan, and Hingis had the bad. It was a cocaine thing. She always always denied that she did cocaine she said she was at a party maybe she got ingested it inadvertently that way but hingis didn't fight it just for the simple fact that she just said legally it was going to cost her way too much money but i agree with you on sharapova the other one i think you know the serena carlos ray i think that'll i mean i that's been talked about to death they've done documentaries on it i i still think that'll be remembered when you look back on her it's certainly not you know the highlight or the of her career, but that that was a big controversy, and I felt like that was kind of mis mishandled that one, and also the whole thing more recently with uh, Chris Kermode and this sort of Novak Roger Rafa sort of political uh, intrigue that was kind of controversial for me. Yeah, which is and it's still happening um, with the right, within right. the ATP right. governance. It's been pretty wild. I have one controversy that you didn't mention. I think it might be the biggest controversy of all time in tennis. You ready for it? It's it's Nick Kyrgios in general. <laughs> Nick Kyrgios is the biggest controversy that has ever happened to this sport. I mean, every single match this guy plays, it is just off the hook craziness. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I love him for yeah. it. I love him for it. I hate him for it. I don't even know what to say about it. But but he is he is just a controversial figure. He'll say controversial <laughs> things. He'll do controversial things. I mean, he's just always in the uh, eye of the hurricane. Every single time he takes the court, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, just it's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, we're going to have like a full the decade. Ultimate, the ultimate dysfunctional relationship in your life that you just can't call yourself away from. <laughs> you just can't take your eyes off it. I mean, it's just, a, and I've been at press conferences where I've seen him just go after people, and you just look at it like you just can't believe some of the things that come out of this guy's mouth, but you can't, you got to watch him. He's riveting to watch for sure. Oh, he's incredible. And he's, he's incredibly gifted. Yeah. He's in, he's a uh, very unique character 
I hesitate to get into the whole the game needs him, the game doesn't need him, blah, blah, blah <laughs> stuff. But a lot of times right. he steps so far over the line that I find myself just absolutely pissed at him and the things yeah, he does. Sure. Other times I find myself so wildly entertained and so enamored of his talents and his charm. He's just the most polarizing player for me and I think for a lot of people and I think it's going to be another 10 years if he sticks around which he probably won't for that long but it's going to be a lot more controversy to come from this guy just, uh, he just oh, can't yeah. avoid it he's the most polarizing player I've seen since since Macaron since vintage Macaron I mean he's and he's you know he's not a champion the way Macaron was but he's one of those guys that you just don't know what's going to happen so you feel like you have to watch it because anything could happen but I think you also touched on something and whenever and I run into a lot of people that just hate can't stand him but i have to say this if you watch him uh, at a practice or after the way he treats kids he's one of the better players as far as signing autographs take it he really and for me that's a big thing as far as growing the sport when you see some players just blow off kids or in heat i've seen him a lot in person you know on a hot day in miami sign autograph do selfies and i think that's a that's a cool quality about that i like about him that he tries to, he does try to appeal to kids and Absolutely. kids seem to like him yeah, there are, there are certainly a lot of redeeming well, I mean, not that gives him license to, you know, F you to everybody, do all the other crazy stuff, but it is a, it is a nice quality in him. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the best thing about Kyrgios that I'll say are what you mentioned, but also his honesty. I mean, he is who he is. He, there's no filter. There's no, he yeah, doesn't, he doesn't, sure. he does not play the game. And, you know, that's tough for a lot of us. And it's, and he's made it tough on himself, but that's just who he is. And I think slowly but surely, maybe we'll see less of it as he matures and maybe has priorities shuffle a little bit as he gets a little older. It's hard to say, but I mean, what an entertaining player. I mean, I thought you were going to say as he gets more therapy. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. I mean, everybody's giving it to him, right? He gets it on Twitter. Oh my God, this guy is crazy. Hey, we live in the age of craziness. Why not have a crazy champion? You know, I mean, why not? He's just <laughs> certainly capable of it. You know, you just don't know. Like you said, you, you don't know what, what's going to come. Yeah, exactly. After he wins uh, Wimbledon or something, it doesn't make well, any sense. Well, I'm not going to bring up the T-shirt slogan he was wearing a couple of years ago, but uh, one of my favorite answers is a, uh, a journalist said, well, what's the meaning behind this shirt? And he goes, I think it's pretty much self-explanatory. I'll never forget that. <laughs> Guy is so funny, man. But what a talent. Yeah, he is, he's a trip to watch. But, you know, I've been in, in even small arena, like even like in Miami this year, he was playing grandstand, and he really gives you the show. If you are if you love shot making, if you love the give and take with the player, also in D.C see when he was talking to fans again which way oh, does, i mean who does that it's just uh you gotta love that yeah the show that he put on in acapulco <laughs> yeah. a lot of rafael nadal fans did not enjoy it and i absolutely understand right, why right. but i mean right. he made he made that into a um, just a crazy a crazy battle between himself and, and nadal and then when he had taken nadal out saving the match points and going on to win the title he still was battling nadal fans the whole way through oh, yeah. and he's crazy oh, this guy yeah. in a good in a good way I don't, I don't i don't know if crazy is a derogatory term i don't want to use that way I mean, he's just a wild man um so yeah there's my yeah, number one how many players do you think have the guts you know to try to drill nadal at net well i mean i've seen him do that i mean it takes a lot of uh a lot of guts. I mean, yeah. and he, he has, you know, he does, I guess I do respect that about him, that he'll treat, you know, number one the same way he'll treat number one. Like, he doesn't, you know, sort of tone down the act no matter who he's playing. You know, you're going to get full on. If he's into it, you're going to get full on curios no matter who you are. So Yeah, and I will say... Kind of, Sorry, I'll interrupt for one last thing on, on Kiros, which if you want to get specific, I think his biggest controversy of the decade was what, what happened in Canada with Stan Varinka, where he, where he made 
comments about Donna Vekic. And I think to me, that's the one thing where I really question the kind of person he is because he still hasn't properly apologized for that. And even in his interview with Ben Rothenberg this year on Ben's uh, No Challenges Remaining podcast, he still seems to think it was funny. And I thought that's really childish and just... To me, that was wrong. That's the one thing where I think it would be, it would be nice if he um, kind of, re- you know, regretted his actions a little more when it comes to that that really big controversial event that happened. Yeah, uh, so that was absolutely ago. disgraceful, and also that he had right on the court the guy. You know, he was asked about it right on the court, and he basically said, "Hey, it's like trash talking." He was getting loud with me. I said something bad. It's like, dude, you didn't say something about him. He said something about someone else that's totally untrue on top of it. So you know. To, to not take account of that. I mean, look, we all make mistakes, but that's that's a pretty vicious mistake to make. And also, like you said, to not take accountability and apologize, that's pretty weak in my in my view. Yeah, that's my, that's, that's my least favorite I mean, He can be really charming and funny, but he can also be vulgar and crude, and that was vulgar and crude, and it was wrong. And yeah. you just don't do that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that to me, that's that's the one that where I still have a little, little bit of a bone to pick with Nick Kyrgios, but uh, maybe maybe in in time he'll learn the error of his ways there. But I think I don't it's know. interesting though to have an antagonistic figure because you have these three iconic players who are all about sportsmanship and all about and and they really do it in a genuine way. And, and to have this sort of wild card guy who is sort of like a total disruptor and like Mr. Mayhem and. You know, he's just like a cyclone of controversy. You don't. It's, it is interesting when he collides into these classy champs because you just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and he's had you success. You know, it's like a tuxedo fine party, and then you throw the guy in. It was like the college frat. You just don't know where it's going to go. You know. Yeah, not even college frat. Like you know, like a complete uh, punk rock mohawk. Um, right. Right. You know, right. Sid Vicious jumps joins yeah. the party. Right. <laughs> All right. Quick, right. quick we'll recap. See what happens. Quick recap before we say goodbye here on the Grand Slams in the decade. Hey, we're just getting warmed up. Say goodbye. Oh, right, right, right. Let's get back to the tearjerkers. <laughs> no, seriously, the uh, the Grand Slams of the decade are done. Let's take a quick look, and I want to get your comment on this. The ATP was Novak Djokovic with 15 major titles, Rafa with 12, Roger Federer and his longevity got five major titles, including his 20th, which is the all-time men's singles record. Women's side, Serena Williams pulls 12 majors. And we have Angelique Kerber with three, which is a big surprise. Then we've got Sharapova, Kleisters, Kvitova, Halep, Lina, Azarenka, Osaka, and Muguruza, all with two. And 16 maiden major title winners on the WTA side versus just three for the men. What What a decade. What a decade. And it's, and we might be seeing that next generation rise on the women's side. There's so many really strong young players coming up. So I think you might see more of that as as the trend going forward. Yeah, and I think you might see more of those maiden major title winners on the men's side. It might look a little bit more like the women's side did this decade next for the men with uh you know, Novak and Rafa still have quite a bit left, you would think, but I don't know how much realistically we can expect from them if three years from now. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And also that the players are so hungry. You know, someone like Sitsipas, to me, he looks hard. He looks like he really wants it, and he puts in the work on his game. I'd be surprised if he wasn't a multiple, you know, major champ. Mm-hmm. And let's let's part with one last mention of the decade. What was your favorite match? Wow, that's a really, really tough one. There's so many. Uh You know, for Qual, I mean, I just, for Qual, 
quality of the reason the Djokovic Federer fight. I mean, that was a high quality match. I know, I know, a lot of people wanted Federer were disappointed, but that was a really quality match. Also, the first men's major final to go to a fifth set tie break. You know, the longest, um, the longest men's Wimbledon final. I mean, that was a great match. But just, I that's a really tough question. God. Uh, you know, we talked about it earlier. The five-hour, fifty-three-minute, the Novak Rafa Australian Open final was a great match. Hey, the Roger beating Rafa at the Australian Open in that final—that oh, was yeah. a really, that was vintage. Fed. That was some of the best tennis he's played. I mean, that one really, really sticks out. Also for his reaction, I might, I might lean toward that one. Yeah, there's gosh, there's so many, right? I mean, I, I don't know. A lot of people. Well, Rafa Roland Garros, sometimes he's blowing through people, but still, when he beats teams, some of those finals, they're still so historic that that those are. Hey, this like you said earlier, Stan beating Novak in the in the French Open final. That for just one guy, just being on fire and hitting backhand winner after backhand winner down the line, that was. a absolutely brilliant match yeah i guess you know you could talk about serena winning her 23rd major against her sister that was yeah. their, their first yeah. aussie open final in in 14 years and um their first all sister final in a long time since 2009 and it, she became the oldest major singles winner on the women's side ever breaking her own record that was pretty special and then i could i could yeah i guess if not talking about the match but talking about the achievement i think what bianca andrescu did this year winning the u.s open on her u.s open debut will go down as one of the most stunning um stunning achievements of the decade but i think you know what in a strange way i think i'm with you maybe it's recency bias but that djokovic victory over federer saving the championship points at wimbledon thinking of how pivotal how important it was in terms of the grand slam singles title race i think that might be the best and biggest moment of the decade also historically if he if he converts one of those championship points he's at 21 majors he's still got He's still got a two-slam cushion on Rafa. All of a sudden, you got a little bit more breathing room. Now Rafa's right on your heel. He's right there. You know he's a huge favorite for France. So you almost look at going into 2020, you expect him to be at least equal. And that's a big turning point if he's at 21 slams instead of 20. Yeah. You know, the other one that, as you were talking about, Serena, that popped into my head, I mean, it, it, not in terms of historical significance, but I have to say, Wozniacki beating Simona in the uh, in the Australian Open final. As far as quality, that was a really really good match. And I remember going in, I was a little bit like, "Wow, you know, two counter punchers. Who's really going to take the initiative? Maybe it's going to be a little bit bland." But they really went at it, and and they both wanted it so bad. And for Carolyn to get the reception she got, winning her first Slam there, the fans were so uh, so vocal and so gracious. That that'll always I'll always remember that final. That was a quality match. I thought. Yeah, I guess. Uh... The lesson, the moral of the story is that you can't really sum it up in one match or one moment. There's just too much. Yeah, good stuff. it was just too much. It was a great decade. It really was. We've been we've been blessed, right? I mean, there, there's only one prediction I'll make for the next decade. And uh, do you like uh, gambling at all? By the way, I do. You know, do. you're familiar with blackjack, right? Yes. Twenty-one is the magic number. Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, twenty-one majors when they all retire. That's my prediction. Wouldn't that be something? That would be, I'd actually and like who, to see that. And we'll never know who the GOAT was. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> except, except for Serena Windsor 25th, which is going to be pretty cool. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Anyway, it's been nice breaking it down. This is cool. We went over 50 minutes. I hope uh, our listeners are still alive. Hello, everybody. Anybody out there still alive? We spent 10 years talking about a decade. I realize that. I feel yes. like 10 years old. <laughs> All right, thank you, Richard. It was nice to reminisce, and I'm looking yeah, forward to the next. It's great ne- speaking with you, and I hope we have another ten years. I hope we're here in ten years from now. Me too. It would be nice. <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> All right. We'll talk again soon. Happy holidays, and uh, thanks again, Richard. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Take care now. Okay. Bye. This edition of the Lucky Let Cord Podcast is a wrap. Hope you guys enjoyed reminiscing about those moments that absolutely ripped our hearts out during the decade of tennis that was. Thanks for listening to the Lucky Let Cord Podcast. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Spotify, all their podcast purveyors, and also on the web, www.tennisnow.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash tennisnow, on Twitter at tennis underscore now. Thanks for listening, everybody. Enjoy the rest of the tennis offseason. season.